Hi, everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Lexi Ferriot, and I'm joined today by Steve Sanye. And if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Barry Schreier, Director of the University of Iowa's Counseling Service, also known as UCS and Professor of Counseling Psychology. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. What got you into the field of psychology and and what was the kind of way that you ended up in your position now? Sure. Great question. So when I was in 11th grade, which would have been in 1982, um, my high school for the very, very, very first time taught you could take a semester of sociology and a semester of psychology. And I thought, cool, that beats shop and drafting. So there I am. And sat, I got about halfway through the semester of psychology and thought, I think this is what I want to do. This is so cool. And then left, graduated from high school and went, ended up at the University of Michigan and um, declaring one's major. One had to go see one's advisor. One had to fill out a card, like a three by five like note card. There were no computers back then to do that. So I went in and had my card all filled out and gave it to my advisor like the fourth or fifth day I was on campus as a first year student. And I remember my advisor saying, oh, well, hmm, this is sort of, this is unusual. You know, most people don't fill out their major until they've been here for a while. You know, you might want to take some time and think about this. And I said, well, tell you what, let me leave my card with you. Um, and if I change my mind, I'll come back. And of course I never went back. So that I just early on decided, I think this is what I wanted to do. And I think that I always, even back then thought sort of the practice side of this, you know, cause one could go be a researcher. One could do IO or industrial organizational psychology. One could do, you know, experimental work. And I think I always wanted to be kind of on the practice side of things. And so I graduated from Michigan and went directly into a doctoral program. I don't even have a master's. I just went right for the doctorate um, and have never looked back. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then I knew I always wanted to work on a college campus. And really sort of the decision was whether I wanted to go to the faculty side or sort of like the counseling center side and clearly chose the counseling center side until I got to Iowa, where this position uniquely really sort of in the country has both roles rolled into it, where mo- most most do not. Um, and so it really is a unique opportunity um, and kind of achieves kind of both nice, both pieces for me um, at this part, point in my career. That's awesome. And then what specifically about the college side of things drew you into this position? Why out of all these other things you mentioned, industrial organization, everything along those lines, it's a huge field out there. Why college? But my less flippant, more serious um, response is, you know, look at the people we get to work with on this campus, you know, these bright, thoughtful, sort of well-intentioned, civically-minded people all the time. It's just such a wonderful place to be. So many resources, working with students, I mean, working with you all, it's just, it's such a joy to sort of work with students all the time who are like eager and developing and want to do better and are trying to make their way in the world. And it's just a really sort of unique population um, to encounter at the time that we encounter you all here on college. And so there's just a lot of really good reasons why being on the, being on a campus has really been sort of just the best place for me to be. So you talked a lot about um, initially about the practice of this and how you could go into so many different sides of it, especially on a college campus. I imagine there's just a ton of different avenues. But right now, I feel like a lot of those kind of mainstream traditional avenues are closed off with the pandemic and the safety issues. And I know you guys have been able to develop and adapt your services during this time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, had you come to us a year ago and said to us, you know, you probably should be doing teletherapy. You know, why don't you offer counseling services to students via Zoom? We would have said to you, no, 
nobody wants to do that and it's too hard and it doesn't work. And, and then one week in March, we, we quite literally in one week in March converted our entire system over from all in person to exclusively and only via telemental health. So it's a major, major shift, you know, and then we had to encounter things like how do we manage confidentiality? And what if you say to me, I'm suicidal? When you used to say that to me, you were sitting in my office. And so it was easy to manage, but you could be in Des Moines and telling me that. Um, and so trying to figure out how to manage all those systems. We also had to figure out, you know, I'm licensed to practice in Iowa. Um, and so you could technically now be anywhere in Iowa and I could, I could see you. But if you're a University of Iowa student, you could be in Texas. What do we do about that? Now, all of a sudden you're a University of Iowa student and you call say counseling and I'm like, I can't help you. You're not, you're not in the right state. The state, your state prohibits us from doing that. Um, so trying to figure out all those kinds of cross-state policy matters. So converting our whole system clinically, if you will, trying to figure out how to do group therapy online, also sort of a, a big challenge. And would students do it became a big question. We have found out that students are doing it um, and seem rather committed to it, which has been great. Um, and then we had to really increase our online presence hugely, bigly, I think, as they say which was coming up with a lot of synchronous workshops and seminars and you know, drop-in kind of opportunities. So students could kind of just synchronously drop in and sort of participate as they felt able and then come up with a lot of asynchronous things so students could seek help anytime. And the nice things about these subclinical services is technically you can participate in a support group or a drop-in workshop or you know, use our videos that we've created no matter where you are in the country or world. So there's still ways that we can serve our students. So we had to figure out all those kinds of things. Um, and so it's just been a huge, huge adjustment. And now we're trying to think, now what? You know, what happens next? Um, and we certainly have come to the conclusion that telemental health is, it's no longer whether we're going to use it. It's simply how we're going to use it at this point. It's always going to be part of the work that we'll do moving forward. And so we just need to figure out the best ways of how to manage that, especially because I think students will prefer to have the option. Some will want to do in person or some may want to do in person, but today it was pouring and I don't want to walk all the way across campus. Can I see you online this week? And so trying to figure out kind of all those kinds of um, iterations. And then the last thing we've done that really is, you know, for somebody is with my age, you know, we really have hugely increased our presence on social media. It's just not my wheelhouse in a lot of ways, but we have a number of really young staff who are super into it. Um, and so we really have hugely increased our presence um, on social media because of, again, we're not standing out on the TN Cleary walkway handing out flyers. So we have to sort of hand out flyers some way. Um, and social media has become a really great way for us to be able to do such things. What does the uptake look like that on the ground level? Because you're talking about this massive change, right? From in-person to telemental therapy opportunities. Who is driving all of this aside from yourself? You know, what are these individuals involved in, in a day-to-day -day basis to make this actually work and run? Who is making it all happen? Us. I mean, it's, it's, Th thank you for that great question. It, it's us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all us. It's been really interesting, you know, like we've had to go, to, we've been the ones that have gone to legal counsel to say, hey, do you know about cross pr state practice laws? And they're like, nope, what do you know about them? Um, and us having to sort of dig our research and do our work to sort of go to our legal counsel to say, here's what we found. Can you help us review these to see, can we practice across these states? And then they have to sort of pick up that basket and do their own research um, so that we can see if we're in agreement. But we're, we're driving a lot of it. Now, the nice thing for us is we have lots of networks nationally. So we can always plug into like all, like I'm in contact with all the big 10 counseling center directors and can find out quickly from them, like, what are you all doing about this? Or there's all these counseling center directors across the state of Iowa, you know, everything from Grinnell to the University of Iowa to DMACC to all these other campuses on, on the campus. And we all are in contact with each other as well saying like, what are you doing? 
And then I'm connected with all the other counseling mental health centers, um, RAC, the Seashore Clinic, the Counseling Center at the Medical College, um, the Employee Assistance Program. And we all talk to each other right here on this campus saying like, what are you all doing about this? How are you handling this? Um, do you have a copy of that sort of form you developed so we don't have to develop a separate one, we can just use yours. So there's been a lot of communication um, in ways that we had never have had to lean on each other as much before. So that's been sort of a, an opportunity we all have seized up just to offer support because every day, every day is navigating unknown waters, just like it is for everybody, for sure. It's not unique to us by any means, but every day it's, it's navigating unknown waters. And so we're looking for any boat or life jacket we can get our hands on um, to do that together. It seems like you guys have done just an excellent job collaborating with people around the state and around the country, like you were Survival. saying. Yeah, survival, definitely. What have you seen, I'm curious, kind of on the student side? Like, have students been adapting to this new format? Yeah, you know, it's been very interesting. We actually just surveyed our students to say, like, I don't know, what do you think of this telehealth thing? Like, thumbs up, thumbs down, what, 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 say, what say you? Um, and so we surveyed all of our students this semester who are currently in, in counseling. We got about 350 students responded, which is, I would say, probably 80% of our students that were in counseling at the time. So it's pretty good. You know, we asked them a few questions. We asked them sort of like, if you had the choice to do in-person only, telehealth only, or, either, or both, what would you choose? And overwhelmingly, students said both. So we take that to mean a couple of things. You know, students often demand things that they have no intention of using. I mean, we sort of, we, we have learned that for sure along the years is you must do this. And then we'll ask like, so would you use it? And they're like, no, I would never use that. So we'll see what it means in the end. But what we think students are telling us is I, I want the choice, you know, and whether I actually would ever use teletherapy, I don't know. We'll see. Teletherapy only, um, in-person only. In-person only was high, was chosen higher than telehealth only, but we had a decent number of students that said telehealth only. For some students, it's just simply an accessibility thing. To get over to your office is very hard for me, um, and I just can't physically do it, and so telehealth gives me an option. Or, you know, if I'm not feeling, if I'm really depressed, and boy, getting out of, the, getting out of my house to come to your office, I don't know if that's going to happen today. But if I could stay home, I might have a session where I might not otherwise. Um, and so I can see why some students would say telehealth only. And then we asked students, like, do you think it's as good as in-person? Is telehealth as good as in-person? What students basically told us is, we're not sure it's as good as in-person, but it's still pretty good. I still think it's helping me. Satisfaction overall, we satisfaction survey those students to say, like, how was it? And overall, our satisfaction ratings were exactly the same as they were a year ago at this time. So students are still expressing the same level of satisfaction with it. So that's kind of what we're at least hearing from students as sort of the report is not our first choice, but given that it's the choice, it's a good choice and you should keep it a choice. It's great to hear and especially like needing that feedback to see if this is an actual service we should go through and support. I mean, that's especially tremendous now when it's like we need the data to make the decision. If I want to flip the script and say, how are the providers dealing with this too? Because that's the other equation is it may be great for the students and all, but what do the providers think on their end? Is it easy to use? Are there hiccups along the way? Are we satisfied? What Do you know what that looks like? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think we're seeing some differentiations based on generation. So the staff here at the Counseling Center span the ages of like, you know, low, sort of like early 30s, late 20s, all the way up to 60s. Um, so we have some definitive generational um, changes, differences in our staff. And I think there's some differences. I think our older staff, which includes myself, yeah, I don't know, we're the hugest fans of it, but you know, again, it works. So we're willing to lean into it. Um, and I think maybe our younger staff are rolling with it better. We actually thought, well, students do group therapy. Would they really come to group online? Yeah, you know, all of our groups are full um, and every student that has come has stayed and the students really, really like it. I don't know if group is my favorite online. 
one of the critical things that we note in group is body language. You know, who are you looking at when you talk? And on screen, I can't tell who you're looking at. And so we lose data um, in the group setting, but it still works. And the students seem very committed to it. And so that's been really great. As far as staff, I think staff, again, sort of, it varies greatly as whether staff think it's really great or, you know, it's just kind of what we have to do to now. And I can't wait till we go back um, to the way it used to be, but we'll sort of figure out what sort of the new normal will be moving forward. So I think there's just a difference, but staff has sort of moved, the staff moved quickly. The staff was very flexible. Um, we all got on board. We did training. We all like rolled into online training very quickly on how to sort of like, what are the ethical um, considerations with teletherapy? How do you manage risk from distance? And you know, what, what sort of standards do we need to set up? How do we get students to fill out paperwork online? Cause they can't come in and do all the paperwork we normally do and creating portals and the use of the VPN and all these new things had to be sort of figured out. How do we convert all of our paperwork to online? Um, and everybody just really pitched in and we converted so quickly in March, it, it frankly sort of terrified me slightly about how like quick and sort of automatic we all just kind of just did it as a group. Um, and then we've learned things along the way and have just continued to sort of improve our system. But at this point, it's pretty foolproof. The only thing that sort of like waylays us is when the power goes out, obviously, or there's just, a, there's just internet dis disruptions. I had a client yesterday Every sixth or seventh word I just didn't hear because it just kept going silent. And I was like, Ugh, I hope you're not saying something really important right now because I'm missing what you're saying. And then I swear to God, this is a true, true story. I am not making this up to make it seem more interesting or embellishing it in any way, shape or form. This is exactly what happened to several months ago. I had a client who I'd been seeing for a while who said, so I think I'm ready to tell you something I've never, ever told anybody else. And it's really hard for me to say, but I just sort of feel like I've been sitting in this counseling with you and I've not been telling the entire truth. Okay. Here's what I want to tell you. And I went, oh, no. And just like, I could see lips moving and no sound. And I was like, oh, you're kidding. I couldn't have written the script this way. Um, and then the camera just went off. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So it took us about five minutes to find each other. And I had to say, remember that thing that was really hard to say? You're going to have to say it again. So those kinds of things come up in our work on occasion as well, but we've even come up with really good ways to sort of manage those as well. It definitely just seems like a testament to how dedicated everyone in your offices and even just in the community to making this work, because it seems like it's been recognized as such an essential thing, especially now. Sure. And we see this in with our, our private practitioners too, like every private practitioner made their way over to telehealth very quickly. Very few people even in the community are seeing clients in person. Some are but very few, most folks, even in private practice, made the conversion over. With that conversion and everything along those lines, because we've talked a lot today about how we've transitioned with these goals and, and where the next steps are, what do you think the next steps are? Because you've talked about the system being foolproof. Is this about you know, expanding services for multilingual patients? Is this uh, you know, expanding services for folks that are typically not captured by the system? Where do you think this is supposed to head next? Well, that's a really good question. Do, do you know? I wish. I wish yeah, I knew. Me yeah, too, I can help you the answer. Yeah, I sometimes have to say to my staff, I'm not holding out on you. I don't know either. Um, it's kind of a lot of what we talk about. Here are the things we're pondering and how it will play out. We don't know. Telehealth is for sure going to be a part of our continued work. For sure. What used to be in the past was when you went home for the summer, you went home for the summer. We'll see you in the fall. And now just because you've gone home for the summer doesn't mean you can't continue in therapy if you're in the state of Iowa. And so those busy 32 weeks a year may become busy 52 weeks a year. We'll just have to see kind of how that rolls out, but things are going to change. Or, you know, when you decided to go do your internship in Ottumwa, we're like, well, that's too bad. You know, when you're done with your internship, come rolling back. But I'm going to be leaving on my internship in Ottumwa. And I can say to you, like, cool, see you next week. 
Um, and so those kinds of things, we're trying to figure out how to manage that. The idea that every single staff person is gonna come back to the office five days a week, every week of the year, I don't think that's gonna be in our future either. Um, and so we need to have then some thought about how much residency are we gonna require staff to have? Residency meaning like you must be in the office. So we're trying to think about those things. Or, you know, what if I'm the staff person who is a really good staff person and does really good work and I got to now move to Illinois, can I keep my job? So we have to sort of think those three things through in terms of residency is how much in the, in the state do you need to be? If you're licensed in Iowa, seeing students in Iowa, do I have to be in Iowa? Um, and so all those questions are coming up for us as well. Um, and then just our continued online presence in terms of offering services and how much, you know, sort of service simply do we continue to sort of in bulk um, provide students online or do we try to get ourselves back to as much in person as possible at that point when we're, we all feel able to sort of safely and confidently and consistently do that. So those are a lot of the questions we're rolling and sort of what's the continued nature of the provision of service and what will sort of the market be and then kind of what will be the nature of work life in the future as well. And, we have a lot of questions and not a lot of answers at this point. And I'm sure more questions will reveal themselves, but that's kind of where it is at this point. It makes me want to go on vacation. That's what I have to say. I feel like that's how almost every kind of avenue of life is at the moment, is there are so many changes that there are just more questions than answers. One thing that kind of struck me earlier is you mentioned that we're not going to go back to what we used to consider as normal. No, no. <laughs> and maybe that could be a good thing in a lot of ways. In public health, we're very big population people. Like, you know, we look at everything on a population scale and we want to affect population health. And to me, it almost looks like maybe in some ways this could give UCS an opportunity to like even expand on that population. Ah, side. No. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, no, that's good. You're right. You're right. Don't panic. That's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. In a positive way, like okay, reach yeah, more people sure. at once. Yes. This could be like a great, maybe there's like a light at the end of the tunnel in some way. Yeah, in the end, you're right. I, you know, I sort of think about our giant increase in our online presence. You know, we're reaching folks we never would have thought we would have been reaching before. So for instance, I'll give you a great example. The re one of the reasons I have to be done with this by a quarter to, to noon is we're gonna be having a, a virtual mental health panel discussion and it's directed at parents and family and guardians. There's no way we would have done that before. Everybody would have had to come to campus. It never would have happened. And now we're doing mental health outreach to the parents of University of Iowa students, no matter where they are in the world. And without this, you know, I would never refer to pan the pandemic as having a silver lining because as I look at the 200 plus thousand people dead, silver lining is absolutely the not correct thing to say. But opportunities have arisen because of it. And, you know, we've tried to seize on some of these opportunities, as you said, to expand ourselves in ways we just never dreamed possible, um, that we would be doing a seminar for parents on mental health. Well, they would have had to come here. And now we, we are going to them no matter where they are. And so you're exactly right on how this has sort of panned out in a lot of ways, given opportunities. You've talked a lot about the unexpected and how you've been able to quickly transition yourself and your staff into this. And this may be kind of already answered within the podcast, but really what is one thing that you thought you knew within this whole pandemic and accommodating to the mental health side of things and provision of services that you were later wrong about. This is where I say something really like, you think like, oh, that is sage level wisdom, but I can't think of anything that would rise to that level. So I'll tell you one of the things I thought of. Before the pandemic, what we heard from the media regularly and what all the research was telling us is that this generation of students, I'm sorry to tell you, both of you, 
you're the most mentally ill generation of students we've ever seen. Um, I mean, it's just, we're inundated with that information. It, it's, it's exhausting. And when we do more sophisticated analyses of the data, we find out it's not true. And things govern why that data is that way, because we say to students, have you felt so bad? And have you felt so bad on any one day in the last month that you couldn't do your work? And students say like, oh yeah. And then we think like, oh, depression. But maybe not, maybe you're just having a really bad day and because of whatever reason you sort of think like, I don't need to do my work today, I'm just not gonna do it because I'm super smart and I'm super skillful and I have access to the internet and the world. And so I answer the question in a direction that makes me seem like I'm really struggling, but I just made a really good self-care choice. Or I just have high levels of distress and I'm a generation that seeks help in ways that my generation never did. We just sort of sat with it silently and suffered and put smiles on our faces and pretended it was okay. And your generation is, that's not okay, I need to go see someone. And so you talk all about it a lot more, but your, your, your distress may not be any worse than it was the generation before potentially, but you just talk about it more. So there's lots of work about like, um, you know, this, this, this generation seems to express its distress a lot more and things potentially are more distressing because you have access to the world all the time. When I was your age, I didn't have access to the world all the time. I had to go to the library to see a newspaper other than the one that was in my, that got put in my mailbox and the news was only on for 30 minutes a day. And now you're, you have we have access to everything all the time everywhere and it's distressing. So I think there's lots of factors that go in to sort of walk us back from the precipice of mental Ill, mentally ill generation. So this, with that as a platform pandemic, oh my gosh, oh, the students are struggling and suicide rates are up and I bet you guys are overwhelmed and I bet students are so depressed and so anxious and this has probably just been awful and none of that's panning out. We belong to a thing called the Center for Collegiate Mental Health. It is housed at Penn State. It is the largest campus mental health database in the world. And University of Iowa, along with several hundred other colleges and universities contribute data to it. So we took a look at the data. Now these are people coming to counseling. So it's just that group. It's not the general population. It's just that group. But for the students seeking help who you would think like, oh, these are the students that maybe are struggling the most. We took a look at um, data. Uh, so every time you come to the counseling center, you fill out a symptom checklist for us called the CCAPS, the Counseling Center Assessment of Psychological Symptoms, CCAPS. And so we upload that data. So we took a look at CCAPS data of symptoms, mental health symptoms, uh, between January and May of this year and compared it to January and May of last year, and nothing went up. Other than family discord, because everybody had to roll home, whether you wanted to or not, so family discord went up, and academic sort of difficulties went up because everything had to go online. But in terms of things like anxiety and depression and all that, none of it went up. None of it was low, but it didn't go back up. It didn't go up as a result, right? In fact, suicidal thinking went down. Are we overwhelmed? No, we're as, we're as overwhelmed as we always are, but did, are more students rolling into counseling than they ever have before? No, they're not. And so we're aware that people are really turning to their networks. Everyone, folks are really resilient. If we were flexible to sort of roll with it, so were you all. All this kind of like, oh my gosh, this poor, poor generation is simply not true. Um, it is a generation with a lot of strength. Um, you are probably the most civically minded generation we've had in a long time. Um, and you all believe that you can get your hands on anything anywhere in the world because you can. Um, and so you're adept at sort of like looking things up and I'm depressed, what do I do about that? And I suffer from this, what are people doing about this? And I'm gonna go join my online support group. And folks are really sort of taking care of themselves in a lot of ways. So folks are still struggling at levels that they always have, and folks are still engaging in help-seeking behavior like they always have, but this generation continues to be resilient, and it doesn't surprise me, but it seems to surprise a lot of folks, and I'm glad for that. You should be surprised because it's such a good group of students, so.
I think it's a really positive, empowering comment because we really do aim for that self-actualization and wanting to make sure that, you know, you are capable of handling things. That's right. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's really good to hear that data because I don't think a lot of us see it sometimes. And it really is that, you know, if you don't see it, then I don't think it's there. And I'm just going to continue on with how things are, how I think they're going to pan out. And and this generation is doing well. That is not super sexy cover for the media. (laughs) You know, it's much sexier to say like, oh gosh, it's terrible. And people are really struggling. Like that's, that's headlines, but that we think the generation is doing actually pretty well and taking care of themselves, though they struggle doesn't get a lot of copy. So it's important to say it. No, and I appreciate you saying it and taking the time today to talk with us about these issues because they are critical for our students to recognize and people in our community to hear about because it is, like you said, not top news at the any media site that you go to, but important things to consider. Barry, I want to thank you for your time today. I mean, thanks oh, for coming gosh. on. You know, we really appreciate the opportunity to interview you and, you know, we wish you guys the best of luck and we're happy to see where UCS takes it from here. Good. Thank you for this platform. And I appreciate your thoughtful questions and uh, helping us just spread the word about campus mental health. I hate to sort of like wax, you know, kind of like a Hallmark card, but it really does take a village. And the more hands we have in sort of helping each other, the better it simply seems to go. That's it for this week's episode of From the Front Row. Huge thanks to our guest, Dr. Barry Schreier, for coming on today. This episode was hosted and written by Lexi Farian and Steve Saunier. This episode was edited and produced by Steve Saunier. You can find more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Keep on keeping on out there.